We're in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30 this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Father in heaven, you are so good to us as we think about our worship this morning. We sang of you as our rock and our redeemer, as the one who has conquered the grave. And because you live, we live. And your goodness, Lord, extended to us through Christ could never be repaid. Uh, This morning, help us to learn, to live, to have a faithful testimony for your church, for your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. If you remember last week, Paul had had told the Philippians that he wanted to go and see them if he got out of jail in chapter 1 verse 26. And in this section, he tells them what he wants to see in the life of the church when he does make it back. And these are really great characteristics uh, or passages because they show us uh, the characteristics of a faithful church. Um, And his words were not just for the people at Philippi. These are words for any church in any age. Uh, In fact, if Paul were speaking to Jefferson Street Baptist Church, he would say essentially the same thing that he did did to them here. You know, when you think about a church, especially in a small community like like we are, every church seems to have a testimony. And it's not hard to discover what the testimony of a church is if you live in that community. Every church is known for something. Uh, Some churches uh, might be known for having a great children's ministry or a great youth ministry. Some might be known for having a great choir or music ministry. Some might be known for for having a whole lot of baptisms. Some might be known for having a whole lot of money in that church and maybe influential people who attend that church. Hey, sometimes the church is known for its cemetery. Oh, they got a great cemetery. And sometimes people will join that church just so they can be buried in that particular cemetery. I've seen that on more than one occasion. And sometimes the church may be known for being progressive, for being contemporary. But what we're going to see this morning is that when Paul went to a church, he He wasn't looking for beautiful buildings. He wasn't looking for large love offerings. He wasn't looking for homemade desserts. He was looking for a church that had a good testimony of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a day when Jesus and His disciples were in the temple and His followers said to Him, Lord, look at all these beautiful buildings. And I guess they thought Jesus would be impressed by those beautiful buildings. But instead of being impressed by those beautiful buildings, uh, Jesus said to them, look, not one stone is going to be left standing on the other before everything is is done. And you see what Jesus was saying to him was this. Look, the temple doesn't mean anything at all if the people on the inside of the temple are living their lives for the glory of God. God was going to come destroy the temple because the temple was certainly beautiful, but the people who were worshiping on the inside of that temple, their heart was far from God. And so the idea here is Paul wasn't just impressed that there was a church at Philippi. He wasn't just impressed that a church existed there. His desire was that those who were in that church were living their lives 
lives for the glory of God. And so I want to show you this morning three characteristics out of these passages of a faithful church. Three characteristics. And the first thing I want you to see is in verse 27. A faithful church lives worthily of the gospel. A faithful church lives worthily of the gospel. Look what he says in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, To live worthy of the gospel means to live as citizens of heaven. That word, that phrase, manner of life, in the Greek, it means to live as a citizen of. Now, the interesting thing about Philippi was Philippi was a Roman colony. Even though Philippi was on a completely different continent than Rome was, Rome had made this as a colony. And the people who lived in Philippi reflected the culture of Rome. Even though they were very, very far away, their dress Uh, their speech, their customs. They even uh, had the same rights as Roman citizens. In fact, if you go back in history, Philippi was actually called Little Rome because it was a a colony. And the idea there is the Roman Empire was trying to stretch its influence. So they were going to these other places and they were planting colonies because as they did that, they were gaining more territory for their empire. So Paul's using this language, using that Greek phrase because he knows the people in Philippi are going to understand what it means. The idea is this. God is expanding His kingdom. God isn't starting colonies. God is planting churches. And the people who worship in those churches aren't to live as citizens of the world. They're to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. The people there are to represent the motherland. You know, when I was in Haiti, the time I was in Haiti, I was still a citizen of the United States of America, and there was so much that I couldn't embrace in that country. When you see a country that embraces and accepts voodoo, that was something that I was thinking, man, there's no way I could ever embrace this. As well, the idea of just watching a person walk along and just throw trash on the ground left and right, even though everyone was doing that around me, I just couldn't imagine that. You know, you're thinking here, well, you'll get a fine for littering. You go to to Haiti and they're not going to give you a fine for littering at all because everybody does it. I was an American living in another country, but my citizenship in this country is what shaped me. I still held on to these certain expectations as an American citizen. And as a Christian, it's even more so. As a Christian, we have wonderful privileges, but we also have expectations that even though we live in this world, we would live in this world as a citizen of heaven. And so the question would be for us, how am I representing my homeland? How am I representing my homeland? Did you know that that the easiest way to tell a person's citizenship is to listen to them speak? Right? When I was in Haiti, it didn't take people long to learn, well, he's not from here. And you've seen people like that too. You can listen to them speak, and even if they speak the same language as you, you can tell maybe by their accent that they're probably not a person that's from this country. And I want to tell you, when you think about speech, that's one of the biggest ways that you represent the kingdom of heaven. And you just think about this okay, how do they talk in heaven? How do they talk in heaven? Can you imagine at all that there's any profane talk in heaven? Can't imagine that at all. There's no profane talk in heaven. Nobody's sitting around gossiping in heaven. Nobody's insulting another person in heaven. Nobody's screaming at another person in heaven. And then when you think about what they talk about in heaven, 
Not just how they talk, but what they talk about. Well, they certainly talk about the things of God. Amen? And how often do I speak of the things of God when I speak to other people? Am I living on earth as a citizen of heaven? Am I praising the King of my country? Is there a desire in my heart to, to want to go back to, or want to, to want to go home? But I want you to notice that Paul assumes you can live as a citizen because you are one. He's not saying, okay, eventually you'll earn this citizenship. Eventually you'll buy this citizenship. No, you don't have to pass a test at all. If you're saved, you are a citizen of heaven. And listen, if you are a citizen of heaven, then that means that you can live out the expectations that God has of you as a representative, as an ambassador of the kingdom of God. And so we need to understand that's not something we're trying to work to. He's not trying to say, do all these things and you'll be a citizen. No, he's saying you are a citizen of heaven. And because you're a citizen of heaven, you need to walk a certain way. You need to live your life in a specific manner. Now, now to live worthily of the gospel also means to live without hypocrisy. It also means to live without hypocrisy. Paul says, whether I come to see you or am, or am absent. See, he wanted them to live a worthy life if he came to see them in Philippi or if he didn't. He didn't want them to say, hey man, let's clean up house because old Paul's coming and we don't want him to know how we live. In other words, Paul's saying, I don't want to be your motivation for living a godly life. Christ has to be your motivation. When you look at the first word of verse 27, it says only. And you know what that means? That means whatever happens, you live for Jesus. Doesn't matter what happens in this world, you live for the Lord. And did you know this? If certain people in this world are your reason for morality, when those people aren't around anymore, you'll no longer be moral. Right? If certain people in this world are the reason you're living your life in a moral or in an attempted godly way, then when those people are gone, your reason for living for the Lord is gone as well. You know, we hear that sometimes as a preacher, I'll do this. say, watch what you say, the preacher's around. Right? As if I'm just going to run tell the Lord. You know, you won't believe what old so-and-so said. I was standing right there. I'm an absolute witness to it, Lord. You know, and if that's the way, if you just clean up your speech and the preacher's around, then you're not helping yourself. That, that, that's hypocritical. Do you know that there are some people who quit going to church because a parent dies? And the reason that they went to church is their mom or dad. And when their mom or dad died, they stopped going to church. Same thing with a spouse sometimes. A husband or a wife passes. And their husband or their wife was the reason they went to church, and so then they quit. Paul says, no. Paul says, if I live or die, if they kill me in this jail, or if I get out and I'm able to come see you, doesn't matter. He says, live your life for Christ. If your faithfulness to God is determined by the presence of another person, your religion is hypocritical. If your faithfulness to God is determined by the presence of another person, then your religion is hypocritical. And to live worthy of the gospel means that I'm going to be faithful to Christ all of my days, no matter who's looking, no matter who's watching, no matter what happens in this life, I'm going to live my life for the glory of God. See, your motivation to live for Christ must be Jesus Himself. That has to be your motivation. I live for Christ because of Christ. 
To live worthily of the gospel means to live without hypocrisy. To live worthily of the gospel means that I live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And then he says to live worthily of the gospel means to proclaim the gospel with your life. Two times gospel is mentioned in verse 27. Now what is the gospel? I hope you know what the gospel is. The gospel is the wages of sin is death, right? And because the wages of sin is death, church, that means that we hate sin. The blood of Christ was shed for me. And because the blood of Christ was shed for me, that means that I'm thankful to the Lord. The gospel is the power of God transforms. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And so does my life say that? Am I preaching the gospel with my life? Does my life say to a watching world, I hate sin? Does my life say to a watching world, I love Christ? And does my life say to a watching world, I am a new creation in Christ Jesus by the power of the transforming gospel? And if our life is not saying that, then Paul says, you know what, you're just, you're just not living a life that's worthy of the gospel. You know, we talk about baptism sometimes, and we talk about that when you get baptized, when you go under that water, it's symbolic, and it's a message to everyone watching. And the symbolism is, the old you is dead and buried. And when you come up, the symbolism there is there's a new you, a resurrected you, and then this you is living your life for the glory of God in Christ Jesus. But it isn't just on your baptismal day when you proclaim that to those who are watching. That's just the beginning. Every single day you're to proclaim that gospel. Every single day you're to proclaim the old Kyle is dead and buried and there's a new Kyle here and Jesus Christ is living His life through Him. And then you put your name there. You put your name there every single day to live worthily of the gospel means that I conduct myself as a citizen of the kingdom of God, that I do so without hypocrisy. And as I live my life in my community, I'm declaring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through my life. Now the second thing I want you to see here about a faithful church is in verse 27 as well. A faithful church stands together. You see a lot of that in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he says, first of all, that the church should stand together in one spirit. Now the word spirit here doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit. It refers to the human spirit. It refers to the attitude that a person has. Um, We use this phrase sometimes, in good spirits. When we say in good spirits, what do we mean? We mean a person's happy, right? We mean so that they have joy. Good question we should ask ourselves. What kind of attitude do I have at church? When I come to church, what is the testimony of my attitude? Everybody has an attitude. It can be a good attitude or a bad attitude. But everybody, when we come to church, we bring an attitude with us. Did you know that there are are buzzards and there are hummingbirds that fly all over this county? Amen? There are. There are buzzards and there are hummingbirds. They're two different birds living their lives two different ways, but they're both all over this county. Buzzards are looking for something dead and rotting, aren't they? That's all they do all day. They fly around and they look for something dead and rotting. Hummingbirds are looking for something bright. Hummingbirds are looking for something sweet. 
They're looking for something alive. Did you know that both hummingbirds and buzzards in Lawrence County find what they're looking for? Amen? They both find what they're looking for. A buzzard finds a dead carcass to eat on, and a hummingbird maybe at your house, maybe outside there, they find it. And the idea here is that's how an attitude is. You can always find something to be mad about, folks. I don't care what day of the week it is. And when you come to church, you can find something to be upset about. But you can also always find something to rejoice in. You can always. And the question I have to ask myself is, you know, when I come to church, what is my attitude? Am I a buzzard? Am I looking for something dead with no life, just, just absolute death and, and something that stinks and something that's terrible? Or am I looking for the good? Am I looking for a reason to rejoice? And whatever you choose is going to determine your attitude. You know, we can't all be rich, can we? But we can all rejoice. We, we can't all be healthy. There's going to come a time in our life when we get sick. But we can all rejoice. And what a wonderful testimony for a church to have. A testimony of joy. A testimony of, of rejoicing. You know, it would be a wonderful thing if when somebody said, well, what about that church? They answered back, well, that's a happy bunch down there. That's all I got to say. Amen? That's a happy bunch down there. You know, you can tell by people's faces if they're happy or not, can't you? They don't have to say anything. You can just look at them and tell. You can tell by the singing in a church. Amen? You can. You can tell by the singing in a church. If, if a church is, has a testimony of, of joy and happiness. You can tell by the fellowship. The fellowship of a church. Do people mingle? Do people walk around? Do people speak to each other? You can tell by all these things if a church has a testimony of joy. And so we need to understand when, when we come, we need to have this attitude, an attitude of a good spirit. Our spirits are cheered. Our spirits are filled with joy. And we should stand together in that. Amen? Rejoicing with one another. One of the best ways to get someone to smile is to smile at them. Amen? Not hard. One of the best ways to get someone to frown is to frown at them. Now the second thing I want you to see in point number two is this, is the church should stand together with one mind. What does that mean? Well, that means a church has to be unified because nothing ruins a church's testimony like division. And it does no good to be united in our doctrine if we're divided in our pews, does it? Does no good to be united in our doctrine if we're divided in our pews. I don't know, some of you who have, have had kids, have you ever had to go on a trip with children in the back seat? One of the most hard things, one of the most difficult things to do is to go on a long trip and have children in the back seat. Because it doesn't matter. They're going to always find something to argue about. And brothers and sisters will fight over the smallest of things and nothing drives a mom and dad crazier than having to listen to it. Amen? Just to hear it going on behind you. It just drives you mad. And I think that must be how God feels sometimes. Here's the truth. We're supposed to grow out of that stage. Amen? As Christians, bickering and disunity is a sign of immaturity no matter how well you know the Scriptures. And did you know it hinders the preaching? The preaching of the Gospel is hindered when that happens. It, it, it restricts the joy 
in the church. It's a barrier to work. In other words, you can't get together and work because people are so disunified. And it's a bad testimony to the world. So Paul says, the testimony that I want to hear of you is a testimony where you're standing beside one another. Where you're you're united. Where people come and they see the joy on the faces of those who attend the church. And the third thing we see in that is, verse 27, is they they should strive, the church should strive together for the gospel. Look at what he says, side by side for the faith of the gospel. The language there refers to the Olympic Games, specifically team games. Not individual sports, but team games. And you know, if you know anything about sports, that nothing will kill a team like a player who makes the, the, the game all about himself. If one player is just trying to shine above the rest. And we need to remember this. As Christians, we all march to the beat of the same drum. And that drum is the Word of God. We're not striving against one another. We're coming together for the reason of accomplishing the same goal. And what's that goal, church? That goal is the furtherance of the gospel. The Bible says if you are saved, you are a body part. You are an eye, or you are an ear, or you are a hand, or you are a foot, or perhaps even an internal organ, 1 Corinthians talks about. But when you separate a body part from the body, it's scary. If you were to open up this door and all you saw in here was one big eye, You'd run for your life. Amen? You remember, you remember the Adams family. You remember um, Thing. You remember Thing would pop up and it would run all around, run all around the house and everything. It's just a hand. You know, if, if that was what was going on in this church, you walk in here and there was a hand and it was just running all over the pews, you'd say, Not today. Amen? And that was the thing that Paul was saying. He was saying when a church doesn't come together and make up the body, when everybody's trying to do their own thing, you're not going to be able to do anything for the glory of God. But the body fit together rightly, striving together, what does that do? Well, it advances the gospel. A great illustration of that is is what's happening here. This past week, um, we had an outreach over at the Mission Center. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful to see how many of the members of of Jefferson Street Baptist Church came and and worked Tuesday morning. And you had people in there who were helping people take groceries to the car. You had people there who who were bagging up groceries. You had people there who were handing stuff out. You had people there who were greeting people, who were just speaking with them. You had people there who were sharing the gospel one-on-one with individuals, praying with, with individuals. What were they doing? All those people over that mission center were standing side by side, striving together for the gospel, weren't they? They were working as one beautiful machine, each doing its own part. And you take a part of that out and, and that machine doesn't run as smoothly as it should. But by the grace of God, we have, each, we have our church. Not, by the way, not only just sharing the gospel with so many people on that day, but also the sweet fellowship of the saints, encouraging one another, speaking with one another, sitting beside one another. Maybe they don't normally sit beside one another because they sit in different areas during church time. But that's a beautiful picture of what Paul's talking about here when he says you're striving together, side by side, for the furtherance of the gospel. Striving together means that we all work with the same passion to accomplish the same goal of spreading the gospel to a lost world. 
And so what should be the testimony that this world hears of our church? What should be the testimony of what our community hears of our church? They, they should hear that we have a godly attitude down here. They should hear that we love one another down here. They should hear that we're working together to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, I want to tell you the reason, the reason that the Mission Center exists is because it gives us that opportunity to strive side by side. And I want to encourage you, when you're able to work there, work there. Because when we work there, I'm telling you, we're doing exactly what Paul said do. You know, a lot of times we read the Bible and we say, well, how do I do that? We have to have a way to do it. And, and if we're honest, that's one of the things that keeps us from doing the things God wants us to do because we think, well, how do I do that? And that's why as leaders of churches, it's our responsibility to create opportunities and ways for you to do what the Bible tells you to do. And the mission center is a godsend, amen? The mission center is an absolute godsend and it gives us that opportunity each week to come together and share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. A faithful church stands together, united. Third thing I want you to see here is a faithful church is not intimidated by the enemies of the gospel. We see that in verses 28 through 30. Look at verse uh, 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. Did you know that it's the enemy's intention to frighten you into silence? It's the enemy's intention to frighten believers into silence. You know what that word frightened is? That word frightened in the Greek language originally was the word that they used to describe what happens when a horse is spooked and throws its rider. That was the word they used to describe when a horse was spooked and threw its rider. And you know, a horse can spook at, at, at things that are just not anything that's going to hurt him. For instance, maybe he sees a pig and it spooks. Maybe even sees a deer. I was talking with a fellow about this who, who does horses for a living. And he told me, he said, you know, even, even sometimes a flag whipping in the wind might cause a horse to panic. And so any little thing, but the idea is, is the horse is this big, massive animal that might, not much is going to mess with, but the horse's mind allows it to be afraid so quickly. And that's what Satan wants to do to us as Christians. He wants to throw us into a panic. He wants to scare us with stuff that's not really even going to hurt us. And how do we know if, we, how do we know if he succeeded? How do we know if he has thrown us into panic? Well, we go back to what we just saw. If we're no longer standing in one spirit, if we're no longer standing together in unity, if we're no longer striving together for the gospel, He's frightened us. Because when a horse throws its rider, the horse is no longer doing the job that it was supposed to do. That's the idea. Satan throws us. We're no longer doing the job we're supposed to do. Listen, if we have stopped standing in one spirit, if we have stopped striving together and standing together in unity, and if we have stopped striving together for the gospel, we've been thrown. We've been frightened. And Satan has succeeded. You know, there, there's, a, there's, an old, um, there's an old hymn book that some of you may know it. And uh, we used to call it the Red Book. 
And it's a red hymn book, and it's real thin. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And it's got some old songs in it, man. It's got like shape note type songs and stuff, if you know what shape notes are. And man, I tell you, uh, there's some songs in there like, boy, this really is not doctrinally correct. But then there are some songs in there that are good. And you think, man, this is a great book. And I've read so many hymn books that, 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 that when I think about this one, I think about that song, Keep on the Firing Line. You ever heard that song, Keep on the Firing Line? Man, I love that song, Keep on the Firing Line. It says, if you're in the battle for the Lord and right, keep on the fire and line. If you win, my brother, surely you must fight. Keep on the fire and line. There are many dangers that we all must face, but if we die fighting, it is no disgrace. Cowards in the service should not have a place. Keep on the fire and line. He said, oh, you must fight and be brave against all evil. Never run nor even lag behind. If you would win for God and the right, keep on the fire and line. And man, I love to sing that song. I love to sing that song. And you know what my favorite line to that song is? Cowards in the service will not find a place. That's my favorite line in all that song. Cowards in the service will not find a place. Did you know that in Revelation chapter 21-8, the Bible says there are no cowards in heaven? Did you know that? There are no cowards in heaven. Now you know that we live in a culture of cowards today. You know, there are countless videos online of a person being assaulted, a person being robbed, a person being defamed, screamed at, yelled, no one is intervening, but someone is there with a, a camera. Someone is there with a phone. And then they'll record it and they'll put it online. And it breaks my heart to see when no one steps in to do the right thing. And it reminds me that we just live in a culture filled with cowards. We live in a, a, a culture where people are afraid to do the right thing. And our culture today is frightening us into silence. If you say a man shouldn't marry a man, well, you're a homophobic. If you say that there are only two genders, well, you're a transphobic. If you say, well, there's only one way to heaven and that's through Christ, they'll say, well, you're narrow-minded. If you say the Bible is the Word of God, they'll say, well, you're a fool. You know, Peter let, him, let his culture frighten him into silence for a little while. Remember that? He, he was there. Jesus had been arrested. They came to him. They said, oh, you were with him. He said, no, not me. Oh, yeah, you were. No, not me. Yeah, we know you were with him. No, not me. Three times he denied the Lord. Why? Because Peter was a coward. Thank God he was restored. Amen. Thank God he repented and came back and preached the gospel and ultimately gave his life for Christ. The Bible says the early church was filled with the Spirit of the Lord and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Now I want you to know, church, there's no reason for you and I to be afraid when it comes to the Lord. When it comes to what God has called us to do as a church, when God comes to what God has called us to do as, as Christians who have united together at Jefferson Street Baptist Church, there is no reason for us to ever fear. You know, the devil has sent his pharaohs in the past, but God has always sent his Moseses too. The devil has always sent his Goliaths, but God always has a David. The devil has always sent his Nebuchadnezzar, but God always sends his Daniels. The devil has sent his Herods, but God will always send his John the Baptist. And in this culture today, God has sent me and God has sent you. And He has said to us, don't be afraid. Don't be frightened into silence. 
Let God swallow up the enemy's armies, church. That's His job. Let God slay the giants. That's His job. Let God handle the fiery furnace if we get thrown in there. That's His job. Let God deal with the wicked politicians and they might take take our head off like they did with John the Baptist. But when they take our head off, remember, God will put a crown right on top of it. Amen? He'll put a crown right on top of it, y'all. So there's no reason for you and I, as we work together as a church, to ever be afraid of what the world might say to us. He says in verse 28 that perseverance is the, in the faith is a sign to a lost world. Look what he says in verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. I want you to look at what the sign is in verse 28. It's twofold. The sign, as you persevere in the faith, and you don't give up, and you don't quit, and you don't get scared... It's a sign that they're lost. And number two, it's a sign that you're saved. I want you to think about this for a minute. Imagine one of these folks saying, God, I asked you for a sign. I asked you for a sign to prove that you're real. And God says, I gave you a sign. The sign was that faithful Christian who refused to back down in a hostile world. That was the sign. You know, for some people, that sign might be a faithful grandmother who lived their life for the glory of the Lord. For others, it might be a spouse. For some, it might be a mother or father. For others, it might just be a friend. But I want you to know that your testimony to a lost world, your testimony to a lost world is the sign for them that they need to be saved. You know, what did the people have in Noah's day? What the people had in Noah's day was the perseverance of Noah. They said he must believe this. He hadn't quit. Amen? And I'll tell you when people will start believing that you don't believe what you used to believe, when you quit. As they see, she didn't even believe. See, he didn't even believe. Look at them now. They were so excited about the Lord. They were so on fire for the Lord. They were all ready to charge hell with a water gun, you know. But look at them now. You're the sign. Your perseverance, just like Noah, who preached for over a hundred years, even though nothing was happening. You're the sign to a lost world that they are lost. And that reality there should show you how important it is that you persevere in the faith, that you don't quit, that you don't go backwards, because you are what God is using to convince a lost world. His Spirit working through you is what God has chosen to use to show people the, the validity of the Gospel. Now, 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 there are many who say, well, I don't believe your witness. And they may say that, but I want you to know this. They have to go home at night. And there are so many people who will tell you to your face, they don't believe, they don't believe, they don't believe. But because you have lived faithfully, because you have had such a good testimony, when they go home at night, it's hard for them to sleep because they think about you. They think about the testimony that you have. They think about, you know what, I might not believe it, but they do. They certainly do. And you have no idea how close that person may be to, to giving their life to Christ. Never give up. Never quit. Continue to persevere in the faith, folks. Because you are the sign. It's in the Word of God right here. He says, you are the sign to a lost world that they need to be saved. That they're perishing. And then the final thing will be done is in verses 29 and 30. It's a privilege to suffer for Christ, church. It's a privilege to suffer for Christ. 
For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul says, look, you saw what I went through. You know that when I was in Philippi, I was mocked by a demon-possessed girl. I was falsely accused by evil men. I was attacked by a crowd. I was whipped and beaten with a rod. I was put in chains and put in prison. And he says in verse 30 that they're going to endure the same type of things that they saw him endure. But then Paul says something so odd in verse 29. He says two things have been granted to them. In other words, these are two privileges that have been given to them. Number one, to believe in Christ. I want you to know that if you believe in Christ, it's a privilege. It's all of grace. You believe in Christ because of God. Number two, he said the second privilege is to suffer for Christ. You say, how in the world is it a privilege to suffer for Christ? Well, let me explain that to you, friend. We are like Christ when we suffer for Christ. God achieved His greatest purpose through the suffering of His own Son. Listen to me. God achieved His greatest purpose through the suffering of His own Son. Will He not, will he not accomplish lesser purposes through the suffering of His dear adopted children? He absolutely will, church. Now, Christ suffered for the sins of His people. We suffer for Christ to convince a lost world that Christ is indeed the Savior. We could never in a million years atone for the sins of a person. But we can, through our testimony, prove to them that the saving grace of God is real. And folks, that is a great privilege. And when a group of people united together in the church continue in the faith, regardless of whatever they may suffer in this world, that creates a chorus that resounds loudly in the ears of a watching world. And they're convinced of the truth of it. This is the testimony of a faithful church. Let me ask you a question this morning, friend. Are you helping your church put forth a faithful testimony? Are you helping your church put forth a faithful testimony? Are you living worthily of the gospel? Are you standing together and striving together with the other people in the church for the furtherance of the gospel? Are you persevering in your faith even when trouble comes? Do you keep going? Do you keep standing? Do you keep working? Or do you give up? Oh dear friends, the testimony of a faithful church is one that lives worthily for the Gospel. One that doesn't quit no matter what happens. And one who comes together with brothers and sisters in Christ and says we will work together to take the Gospel to a lost world until Christ returns. I hope you know Him today. I hope you know Him today, friend. I hope you've turned from your sins. I hope you believe He's the Son of God who died and rose again for you. And I hope you'll call on His name and be saved. And then when you do that, I hope you'll join brothers and sisters in Christ. And let's do what God's called us to do. Maybe you'd like to come to this altar in a moment. Maybe there's some big burden on your heart. Maybe uh, you need to be saved. Or maybe you have been and you need to make it public. Or perhaps there's just some other reason that you'd need to come to this altar. But whatever it is that God may be dealing with you about, you come as the Spirit leads. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this word. A word that we need. The testimony of a faithful church. Help us to have that testimony.